Well, good evening, folks. We're, we're back again for the final piece in our emphasis on the opioid crisis. And uh, I know uh, some of you have been here in person. We have some folks with us this evening, and we also have a, an audience online. Welcome to Central Bearden. We are delighted that you're all with us tonight. Let me start our uh, program tonight with a short word of prayer. Dear Lord, we are or we should be mindful of the devastation of the opioid crisis around us and in our community and across this land. Um, Lord, we would pray that we would open our hearts to people who are uh, dealing with addiction, that we would open our hearts to people in recovery and let, them sh let us be willing and able to share the love of Christ with all of these people as we come in contact with them. We need to remember that this is a disease. Um, it's not a moral failure, and we need to sing that from the rooftops. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to share together. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It is my pleasure to introduce to you tonight uh, Jessica Stanley. Jessica works with the Metro Drug Coalition, and that's the group that has really been behind this uh, uh, four or five uh, event uh, time for us to focus as a church on the opioid crisis and as a community with those of you online. Um, Jessica's the ROPES coordinator and that is the Regional Overdose Prevention Specialist, did I get that right? For Knox County and that means she's a trainer for the uh, uh, naloxone which is uh, also marketed as a nasal spray called Narcan. So what we're going to do today is a training, uh, and uh, hopefully Jessica will tell, her, tell us a little bit about herself, and um, a training on Narcan. So when you leave here this evening, if you would like to, you can get a kit and be an officially trained person and carry Narcan with you. I carry mine in my backpack with me everywhere I go, and uh, I haven't had to use it yet, but I want to be there to help one of my friends or fellow community members if the need should arise. Um, so without further ado, Jessica, it's all yours. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Hey guys, uh, my name is Jessica Stanley. I am our Regional Overdose Prevention Specialist. Um, I serve Knox County. I work for the Metro Drug Coalition, um, but I am under a federal grant through the Tennessee Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services. Um, I'm an individual in long-term recovery. I also am a certified peer recovery specialist. Um, Narcan saved my life, so it is an absolute honor to be able to do things like this and serve my community. Um, so we're just going to go over a little bit of information. We're going to learn how to administer Narcan, um, and it's a lot of educational data in this training and things like that and then at the end I will give you all some time to ask questions um, because I want everyone to leave here tonight um, being completely confident in case you ever have to administer naloxone um, or you deal with family members or friends community members that have a substance use disorder um, so yeah we'll leave that open at the end to go over some things um, and if anybody needs anything during you're more than welcome to just raise your hand and we can get to it okay 
So today we have some key training objectives. These are some things that I really want you to leave with um, and need you to understand. So first we're gonna start off with what opioids are and what the opioid epidemic looks like. So starting out as a nation, then we're gonna break it down to our state and right here to our community, which is Knox County. And we're gonna talk about some high risk factors of an opioid overdose. My job is harm reduction. So I want you all to know what that means. Okay, it's surrounded by love um, and compassion, and I want you all to know and understand what harm reduction looks like and what it looks like being used in action. So also on reducing stigma, we're gonna talk a little bit about how we can bring down the stigma on individuals with substance use disorders. The addicted brain and trauma, recognizing an opioid overdose, naloxone, how and when to use it, and we're also gonna talk about compassion fatigue, burnout, and self-care as well. So what are opioids? Opioids is a term for drugs that bind to opioid receptors in the brain. So not only are we talking about illegal drugs, we're also gonna be talking about prescription medications, okay? So these are the medications that are specific to naloxone. So we're gonna be talking about things like morphine, oxycodone, oxymorphone, hydromorphone. Um, we're gonna be talking about fentanyl, carfentanyl, and buprenorphine, which is also suboxone and subutex as well. So what the opioid epide uh, epidemic looks like, starting out with our country, we have more than 130 individuals die every single day from an opioid overdose. 67% of those deaths involve synthetic opioids, and we're also gonna look at some synthetic opioids too. So in 2018, we had more individuals die of an opioid overdose than we did from car accidents. And the CDC has put what they call an economic burden on prescription opioid misuse in the United States as $78.5 billion a year. That's a lot of money. So breaking this crisis down to our state um, and getting a little bit closer to home, what does this look like for us? What does the opioid epidemic really look like? So in Tennessee, we had more than 5 million opioids for pain prescriptions in 2019. So what that comes out to is about 0.8 prescriptions for every man, woman, and child right here in our state. Also in 2019, we had more than 1,500 individuals die of an opioid overdose. So they put an opioid overdose death rate on that as 23.4 people per every 100,000 people. So kind of looking at a timeline of where we've came over the past few years, from 2015 to 2019, our heroin-related overdose deaths increased by 85%, and our fentanyl-related overdose deaths increased by over 500% in the past five years. So these are some of our um, illicit synthetic opioids. What these are is this is what is driving the dramatic increase in overdose deaths, okay? These are images from the DEA, and what they are is they are vials of heroin, carfentanil, and fentanyl. This is how much an individual would need to consume in order for the opioid overdose to be fatal. Okay, so this is exactly how much an individual would need. So fentanyl is 50 to 100 times more potent than heroin, and carfentanil is 100 times more potent than fentanyl. So most of the time, carfentanil and fentanyl are mixed with other substances. However, we have seen a lot of pure fentanyl recently um, in the past few years as well, but most of the time, these are mixed with other substances. So again, this is from our DEA, and these are lethal doses of synthetic opioids. Breaking this down to our county, um, all of our data that we currently have is from 2019. Um, so as you can imagine, these numbers have risen. Um, but in 2019, we had 186 overdose deaths right here in Knox County, and 45 of those were specific to heroin. 
So as we were looking at the state where it came out to 0.8 prescriptions for every resident, right here in our county, we had 0.7. We had over 316,000 opioid prescriptions. So what causes an overdose? This graph that we're looking at right here, these are our brain receptors. So once opioids attach, what they do is they block our pain and slow down the breathing. So again, these are our brain receptors and the blue circles are the opioids. So what they do is they sit perfectly on top of our brain receptors. When too many opioids attach to too many of those brain receptors, that's when we have an overdose that occurs. Okay, it completely causes the breathing to stop. Some of our high risk factors that we have for an opioid overdose, um, some of these that we are going to go over, just because an individual may be experiencing this in their life does not necessarily mean that they are going to have an opioid overdose. This just means that they are at a greater risk for an opioid overdose than if these factors weren't into play, okay? So after periods of no use, when we're talking about things like um, individuals with substance use disorders being in jail or treatment facilities, sober living homes, things like that, when they have been abstinence from the use of drugs for a period of time, the tolerance for that individual goes down. So when an individual comes out of those places and they decide to use drugs again, specifically opioids, they are putting themselves at a greater risk. Most people get out of those places and think that they can still do the same amount that they've done before they went in. Um, and again, that tolerance has gone down. So that is what puts this individual at a greater risk for an opioid overdose. Also with our tolerances, things like previous overdoses and history of addiction, this is when the tolerance goes up. So the longer that an individual uses drugs, the more drugs they're gonna have to use to get the high that they are chasing, okay? So obviously the more drugs they are consuming, the greater risk they are going to be at for an opioid overdose. So things like um, mixing opioids, especially with alcohol and benzodiazepines, this is a very, very, very dangerous cocktail and we need individuals to understand that, okay? So using while alone, this is very important. Um, individuals cannot Narcan themselves when they are unconscious. A lot of people um, have a misconception that individuals can Narcan themselves, um, but that does not work. When an individual is not conscious and they are not breathing, they cannot administer Narcan to themselves. All right, so suicidal ideation, a lot of the times what we see is when individuals are attempting suicide and substances are involved, most of the time opioids are involved in this process. All right, so an individual would be at a greater risk for an overdose um, when they are taking drugs in a suicide attempt. So things like mental illness and chronic illnesses, um, these are also what we call dual diagnoses. So this is when an individual has these illnesses and also substance use disorders, right? So an individual that needs to be under a doctor's care, but they are not, and they are using opioids specifically, what we call that is self-medicating. Okay, so that is very dangerous when individuals do things like that. And also methadone prescription. So this falls under our umbrella of MAT. So this is gonna be things like methadone, Suboxone, Subutex, and Vivitrol. When an individual with a substance use disorder is under a doctor's care and they are being treated for the substance use disorder, they are being prescribed what their body can tolerate. Okay, so we're talking about putting opioids on top of this is what makes this dangerous and puts an individual at a greater risk for an overdose. So again, my, my job is harm reduction, um, and I want you to know what this means. So harm reduction is a way of preventing disease and promoting health that meets people where they are. That is specifically what I'm here for, is to meet other individuals where they're at. 
Not everyone is ready or able to stop using drugs, so it's scientifically proving that decreasing these risks are very essential. So the ways that we can do that, um, and that falls under the harm reduction umbrella, things like our MAT programs, naloxone, and our syringe exchanges. We also have some core principles in this job. So what we do is we use a very non-judgmental approach. Um, I have no business judging another individual's life experiences. Um, so again, I'm just here to meet individuals where they're at. And understanding that behavior change is an incremental process. So I'm not able to speak for other individuals, but I am an individual with substance use disorder. And I know that once the drugs came out of my body, the behavior did not change immediately. So that was a process, and it's okay for individuals to go through a process with that. So focusing on enhancing quality of life, this is probably my favorite thing about harm reduction, and this is how we know that harm reduction works. So if we can see an individual's life get better, even if it's over a period of time, we know that our jobs are working. And also we understand that complex social factors influence their vulnerability to drug use and drug-related harm. So things like poverty, social inequality, um, trauma, discrimination, all of those things have a lot to do with drug-related harm. Empowering those who use drugs to be the primary agents in reducing the harms of their drug use. So what this basically means is if we have individuals that we are trying to utilize harm reduction with, if they are not being empowered and being supported to do so, these things are not going to work. All right, we need individuals to feel comfortable and feel safe being able to utilize harm reduction services. So harm reduction action, what does that even look like? In the event of an opioid overdose, if you administer naloxone, that is harm reduction action, okay? Calling 911 to get them their needed medical attention and also assessing their needs. So is there a treatment or a service that is appropriate or desired by the individual? Um, is the individual willing to go to drug and alcohol treatment? Are they willing to receive um, peer support services? Are they willing to go to church? Are they willing to um, become an active member of their family? Things like that, what are, what are they willing to do? And also what experiences can influence their willingness to utilize these services? So these experiences can be positive or negative, right? We can have an individual that may not have had any consequences from their drug use, so they may not be so willing to utilize any of these services. And then on the other hand, we may have an individual who has experienced all the consequences, and so they may be more willing to utilize these services. This is very situational, and this is very personal, okay? That can also be vice versa. So just assessing their needs and having conversations about overdose prevention, naloxone, and safer drug use strategies. So that moves us into our syringe service programs. What our SSPs are is they're community-based public health programs that provide comprehension harm reduction services. So most of the time, our SSPs are known as our clean needle exchanges. We do have a local one here in Knox County. It is Choice Health Network. Um, it's a very beautiful group of people, and they do a lot of amazing work. So some of the harm reduction services they provide, they provide sterile needles, um, safe injection equipment. They do safe disposal containers. They also do a lot of our HIV and hep C tests. So they can also be a referral source. They can help with individuals getting to treatment, or do they need mental health services, social services, medical services, things like that. This is a lot of stuff that they can do. Um, also, they do education about overdose prevention. So they also help to educate about naloxone, um, and they also help a lot with naloxone distribution as well, too. So they are very um, fantastic to be able to partner with and work with very closely. Um, they also do tools to prevent HIV, STDs, and viral 
viral hepatitis. So again, a lot of these things in our community that our syringe service programs do, um, this is very, 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 very vital to our community, and they do have a lot of benefits. So our SSPs help reduce drug use over time. People who inject drugs are five times more likely to enter treatment for substance use disorder when they are actively participating in our clean needle exchange, right? So also they're more likely to reduce or stop injecting when they are also actively participating in this clean needle exchange. And our SSPs help reduce needle stick injuries among our first responders by providing the proper disposal. So again, they provide the safe disposal containers um, to get rid of needles and things like that. They also help reduce HIV and hepatitis C incidences and overdose deaths. So our SSPs are very important. We do have a couple laws behind our syringe service programs. Um, in 2015, Tennessee passed a law called um, the needle possession. So basically what this breaks down to is if an individual is actively participating in the clean needle exchange, they are given a card that says that they are um, a member of this, right? So if an individual were to get pulled over and they have these needles on them, they cannot be charged with the needles that came from the clean needle exchange. However, they can be charged with other drug paraphernalia or drugs that may be on them, right? Um, so this may be a little bit of gray area for those of us that work in harm reduction, but this is very black and white for um, law enforcement. So in 2017, they passed what is called the Safe Syringe Act. And just what this is saying is that any non-governmental agency that has been approved by the Tennessee Department of Health can operate a syringe service. Um, they have a lot of rules and regulations that come behind running a clean needle exchange, things like location. So there are some barriers, um, but that was passed in 2017. So again, a lot of what we do um, is reducing stigma. How can we bring this stigma down? How can we be a part of the solution? And how can we help individuals that have substance use disorders? So over 50% of opioid prescriptions for pain in Tennessee were paid for using insurance. So as you can see, these colors um, represent different insurances. And the most insurance that has, that has paid for prescription pain medications has been commercial insurance. So the average number of pills prescribed after a surgery in the United States is 82. Basically what that means is if you go in for a major or a minor medical surgery, you will receive around 82 prescription pain pills. Um, and then we are having 66% of our surgeons saying after those 82 pills, they are being pressured to prescribe more pills than necessary. Okay, um, I love our doctors and doctors are our friends. However, when they are feeling a lot of this pressure, they are continuing to write these prescriptions. So I think the middle is probably the most important part of this slide. Um, individuals that do not have a prior history of substance abuse, um, substance use disorder, addiction, anything like that, those individuals that are going in for surgeries and they are receiving prescription pain pills, we are having 12% of that population report a later opioid dependence or addiction. And that is a very, very, very high number. So doing away with labels and using person-first language, basically um, a lot of individuals are not comfortable with just being called an addict or an alcoholic, right? That makes some people uncomfortable, and that's okay. So using person-first language, if you hear me talk, you'll hear me say individuals with substance use disorder, things like that. I, I will not label an individual. So letting them self-identify, what are they comfortable with? Not everybody wants to be called addicts and alcoholics. You know, so saying things like individuals with substance use disorder, opioid use disorder, alcohol use disorder, things like that, it just pulls that stigma down a little bit. 
So also, I liked how Mr. Wayne was talking about relapse not equaling a moral failure. This is what we talk about a lot, okay? Relapse does not equal a moral failure. 40 to 60% of individuals will relapse at least once, and that is over half. It's over half of everybody that has a substance use disorder that tries to get into recovery. Okay, so we don't need to shame these individuals. What can we do to be a part of the solution with this? Being aware of unintentional personal bias, basically this just means that like we're human, right? We're human and we judge and that's okay. That's gonna happen. However, am I able to make myself aware of what my body is unconsciously doing? Am I able to understand that? Am I able to identify that? And that way I can help and reach and serve more people within my community, right? And recognizing that addiction is often connected to trauma. So not every individual that has a substance use disorder has had such a traumatic life. But understanding that most of the time addiction does have underlying trauma, that is very important. So addiction is a chronic disease that changes the brain structure and function. Just as a cardiovascular disease damages the heart, addiction hijacks the brain. This is something really cool that I learned about and it kind of was a game changer for me. This is called the pleasure principle. So what this is, is it's how the brain registers all pleasures the same way through dopamine. I'm gonna give you a kind of a head picture to see what we're talking about here. So basically, if you were to turn on the kitchen sink and let the water run at a consistent pace, that's how much dopamine our brain registers, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. When we use addictive drugs, specifically opioids, what happens is our brain gets flooded with all this dopamine. So it's like opening up the gates to the flood dam and all that water comes crashing in. When that happens, our brain creates what is called a condition response. So if you've ever heard an individual that is in recovery and they have said they have triggers or they have cravings, what this is, is this is their pleasure principle working. Their brain is going, oh, I know how we can feel good and I know how we can feel good really, really fast. This is what contributes to relapse to individuals that are in recovery. So this is called the pleasure principle and that, that's a pretty cool thing to know about. Also, ACEs, what they are is their adverse childhood experiences. So they're stressful or traumatic events, including abuse and neglect. A lot of the ACEs that we talk about commonly as a society, we talk about physical, mental, sexual, emotional abuse and neglect, but some of the things that we don't consider or we don't put into play all the time is what happened in our childhood. Were we in the home with an individual that was incarcerated, like a household family member? Were they incarcerated? Did our parents get divorced? Did we watch one of our parents or siblings get treated violently? Was there substance use within the household? So when we think about things like this, I don't know about y'all, but when I was four years old, I'm not real sure what was going on in my household. I didn't know if somebody had a mental illness or not, right? However, as we grow up, these are still traumatic events for children, even if we're not aware of what they are when we were four. As we grow up, these become our aces, and they come into play in our lives a lot. So on an aces cluster, 40% of adults reported two or more aces, and 12.5% experienced four or more. So individuals with four or more aces are 12 times more likely to attempt suicide. Individuals with five or more ACEs are seven to 10 times more likely to use illicit drugs. And individuals with six or more ACEs are 46 times more likely to be IV drug users than those with no ACEs. That's where our ACEs come into play. 
So recognizing an overdose. Um, a lot of the myth about an overdose is that it occurs immediately. Um, a lot of the times with fentanyl and carfentanil being present, it is happening a lot quicker. However, most overdoses happen over the course of several hours. Okay, so we need to know what we are looking for. What does an opioid overdose look like and how do we respond to that? So some of the signs that someone can either be high or over medicated, their pupils can be small, they can be nodding out. This almost looks like um, a very sleepy nod off. They can be scratching their skin a lot. Their speech can be slurred and they may be out of it, but they can still respond to outside stimulus. So again, we're on if an individual is just high or over medicated. So outside stimulus is gonna be anything outside of our body. If somebody is yelling Jessica or they're shaking me and it is outside of me, that is gonna be my outside stimulus, all right? So moving into an overdose, this is what an overdose looks like. The loss of consciousness is gonna be your very first indicator. They're gonna be unresponsive to that outside stimulus. So an individual is not gonna to respond to you when you're yelling, uh, yelling their name or you're shaking them. Also, if they are breathing, it's gonna be very slow, but they cannot be breathing. If they are, it's gonna be very slow, and that is the same with their heart rate. Okay, so if it is there, it's going to be very slow as well. So the individuals can be making choking sounds, they can be vomiting, their body can be limp, their face can be uh, very pale or clammy, their fingernails and their lips can turn blue or black. So this is what moving into an overdose looks like. These are our signs of trying to separate the two, okay? Also, these are some myths to reversing an overdose. Um, before I worked here with the Drug Coalition, I worked in the emergency room, um, and we were doing peer support to individuals who had experienced an opioid overdose. So a lot of the times, the things that we would see, um, very, very common, is that an individual would bring their friend in um, for an opioid overdose, and they would say that their friend overdosed on heroin, so they decided to inject them with meth. Okay, in that state of mind, I can see where that would make sense, but this is very, very, very dangerous. A lot of those patients ended up getting admitted. They had serious infections, um, and a lot of stuff started going on with their heart. Okay, so please do not put another substance in an individual's body that has experienced an opioid overdose, right? The second most common thing that we would see is an individual be put in water. It takes a teaspoonful of water to drown an individual. We do not want to put water on their face and we do not want to put them into water. This is very, very scary, so please be careful with that as well. Try to make the person eat or drink. We also don't want to do this because we don't want the individual to vomit and we don't want them to choke on that vomit, right? So we don't want to try to make them eat or drink when they're experiencing an opioid overdose. Also, this goes along with any other substances in their body. Don't give them any over-the-counter drugs, vitamins, niacin, things like that. None of these help as well. So these are all myths to reversing an opioid overdose and these are things that do not work, but they can potentially be very dangerous. So what does work though is naloxone, right? Naloxone and Narcan are the exact same thing. Um, naloxone is just the generic brand. So um, naloxone is the only successful way to reverse an opioid overdose so far. Again, this is our graph and these are our brain receptors. And the blue circles on top, those are the opioids. And the little, I call them our little cloud buddies that are sitting on these brain receptors, that is the naloxone. So what naloxone does is it reverses the effects of opioids by binding to the same sites more powerfully than the opioids do. So what the naloxone does is it pulls the opioids completely off of those brain receptors and it attaches itself. When it does that, it opens up the airway for an individual to breathe. 
So Narcan is just a bag of time. This is not an addictive substance, and this is not a treatment, okay? It's given us about a 30 to 90 minute window, window to save an individual's life in order for them to get the help that they need, okay? That's all we're doing with naloxone is saving lives. So also when you Narcan someone, they're gonna go into temporary withdrawals. So an individual may not feel so well, and we're gonna cover that just a little bit down. It's also not possible to overdose someone on naloxone. So if you feel that they need to be administered another dose, um, when you're on the phone with 911, two to three minutes apart is when you can administer another dose, and you're more than welcome to do so. So naloxone comes in four different variations. Um, I just want you all to be comfortable with using all of these. Um, obviously, the ones that you will receive are going to be nasal spray. However, I don't want you all to end up in a situation where there's another form of naloxone available, and you've been trained, and you're confident, and then you don't even know how to use the naloxone, right? We don't want that to happen, so I want you all to be able to use every single one of them. So again, the most common form, this is gonna be our nasal spray. This is exactly what it looks like. This is the package that it comes in. And all of your naloxone is gonna come in two doses. So every single type, they all come in two separate doses no matter where you get these from, right? So this one is nasal. It's really simple. This is just them out of the package. So what you're gonna do is you're gonna take the nozzle and you're gonna place this on the inside of an individual's nostril and you're gonna press the release button. When you do that, this is a trainer, so it keeps coming out. When you do that, the button doesn't come back, okay? So you're not gonna have to wonder if you administered it, what's going on. You're gonna know because your release button is gone, okay? And it's also red, so I promise you cannot miss it. Um, but what's going to happen is that's immediately going to start attaching to an individual's brain receptors, right? So you don't have to close their mouth and blow in their nose um, if they're not breathing, anything like that. Just make sure you get the nozzle on the inside of their nostril and um, go ahead and press the release button, okay? That's how that one works. We also have another nasal form. This is called an automizer. Most of the time, this is with our medical professionals and law enforcement. However, sometimes our harm reduction clinics are given these out, so they are in our community. So as you can see, this is a three-piece um, device, but it is very simple. The top just screws on, and the vial for the bottom just goes straight in, okay? This is also nasal. So what you're going to do is you're going to put the nozzle on the inside of the individual's nose and press the release button at the bottom. I used all this in training, so I can't press anything, but it's it stays out and it presses. So that one's also nasal. So the last two that we have, these are intramuscular. With our intramuscular ones, we highly suggest that you use them on the outside of an individual's thigh, okay? If that is not available, you can use it in the side of their arm, but you're more than likely to hit a bone. So we want you to try to go for that outer thigh if that is available. Um, so this one is a needle and a vial. These come from our harm reduction clinics and they are very simple to use. So all you're gonna do is the needle snaps together. It's just in two pieces and there's only one place that it can go together. And in your vial, it's gonna have the exact amount of Narcan that you need. So you do not have to guess how much you're gonna need. You're gonna use every single bit of it. So you just draw it up and you're gonna use it on the outside of an individual's thigh. 
So this one is also intramuscular. Um, however, you are never gonna see a needle on this, okay? This is auto-injecting. These are my favorite ones, but they are no longer manufactured. However, there are a lot of these in our community, so I still want individuals to be comfortable with using them in case you come across them. So since we are training, and I, I need everybody to see, I'm going to use my hand, but again, this is a needle, and this is gonna go on the outer thigh, okay? drug. If you are ready to use, pull off red safety guard. To inject, place black end against outer thigh, then press firmly and hold in place for five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Injection complete. So again, all of your Narcan is going to come in two separate doses. Um, however, the only one that comes in three is going to be your auto-injecting one. The reason this comes in three is it comes with two doses and it has a trainer with it. Okay, you're going to know that it's a trainer. It says it on the top, on the front, on the bottom, and when you open it, it lets you know that it's a trainer. The real ones talk to you the exact same way. They just don't let you know that they're a trainer. All right, so they're really, really simple. Does anybody have any questions about how to administer any of these before we move forward? Hmm? Or it's something else, is that what you mean? Okay, so he asked if someone was unconscious um, and how you would know if it was an overdose or if it was something else. So the great thing about Narcan is it only responds to opioids. So if an individual is having another medical um, issue and it is not an opioid overdose and you administer Narcan, it is okay. Narcan only responds to opioids. So it is completely safe just in case. Right, so don't be hesitant to administer Narcan. If you're not exactly sure what's going on, um, if they are experiencing the signs and symptoms, you can go ahead and administer some Narcan and it'll be okay if they are not experiencing an opioid overdose. Does that answer your question? Okay. All right, so a lot of the pushback that we get from the community is that we enable individuals um, to use drugs. That is, absol uh, that is absolutely not what we are doing, okay? What we are doing is keeping people alive. That is all naloxone does is keep individuals alive. So going through withdrawals is painful and unpleasant. Um, individuals do not try to achieve a high where they overdose and have to get Narcan and go through withdrawals that do not feel so well, okay? I promise opioid withdrawals are not comfortable at all. So research actually shows that individuals who inject drugs and are trained on Narcan reduce their use over time and increase knowledge in overdose response behavior. So what is overdose response behavior? If an individual um, has experienced an, over, um, an overdose and they remember what they were doing prior to the overdose, that is going to set into them basically what they might not want to do again. So they may use a little less. Okay, and they may use a little less and a little less and a little uh, less. So that is the research that we do have that has shown that that is um, accurate and it is called overdose response behavior. These are some of our liability laws. Again, this is for the state of Tennessee. Um, we have ropes that cover all 95 counties in the state of Tennessee, and I'm not sure about laws in other states. However, these are our liability laws in the state of Tennessee. So what we have is it's called a Tennessee Addiction Treatment Act. 
What this means is if an individual experiences their very first overdose and they seek help um, medically, right? If an individual has been administered Narcan, they wake up in the hospital and they are willing to go to treatment. An individual will not be charged with the drugs that are on their person. So basically it just creates immunity from prosecution for a drug violation for that individual. This is for their very first drug overdose. All right. And then we have the Tennessee Good Samaritan Act. So what this is, is it says that anyone can administer Narcan in good faith to an individual that they think is experiencing an opioid overdose. So it says that has received basic instruction, which is what you're doing right now, and evidence by certificate. So your certificate is going to be in your opioid overdose reversal kit. It's a wallet size card. It has the Tennessee Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services logo on the front. It has a line for your name. And on the back of that card, it has both of these state laws on there. Okay. Um, a lot of individuals put it in their wallet and a lot of individuals just leave it in their kit for whenever they need to use it. So whatever you're comfortable with, um, that's going to be your certificate for the Tennessee Good Samaritan Act. So responding to an opioid overdose, a lot of people ask um, with the Good Samaritan Act, what is good faith? How do we know what good faith is? How do we know when to administer Narcan? How do we know when we should not, right? This is what we're going to do. We're going to take these simple steps, and this is going to be our good faith. So when we're questioning these things, um, this is how we know that it is okay to administer Narcan to someone, right? So the very first thing that we're going to do is we're going to try to maintain their responsiveness. So we're going to say that Miss Mary um, has, or we think Miss Mary is experiencing an opioid overdose. So we're going to try to maintain her responsiveness. We're going to use our outside stimulus, and we're going to call Miss Mary's name, and we're going to shake Miss Mary. When Miss Mary is not responding to that, we're going to do what we call the sternum rub. So we're going to make a fist, and not our knuckles, but we're going to use our joints in the front, and put them on the middle of an individual's chest, and we're going to press and rub as hard as we can, okay? If Miss Mary is responsive at all, she is going to sit up when you do that. When she does not respond to you, that is when we are going to administer Narcan, okay? So when Miss Mary is not responding to the sternum rub, we're going to administer Narcan. We suggest that you keep your Narcan at room temperature. It can overheat, and it can freeze, all right? So we want to take care of this. This is life-saving, and we want to treat it as such. What we call it is pill, place, and press. Um, we call it that because the way that it's packaged, we're going to peel off the back, place the nozzle in their nose, and press the release button. So pill, place, and press. This is the, probably the most simple part of the entire process. So after we administer the Narcan, we're going to call 911. This is very, very, very important. Narcan and 911. They go together, two peas in a pod. 911 is going to need to know some things. They're going to need to know your location. They're going to need to know um, if the individual is breathing, how much Narcan has been administered. And they also need to know what medications the person is on, if you know. Sometimes you may end up in a situation where Miss Mary was at the gas station and you don't even know Miss Mary's name is Miss Mary, right? However, what you do know is where you're at, if Miss Mary is breathing, and how much Narcan has been administered. So 911 needs to know these things. Also, it's really, really important to have 911 on the phone. If CPR is required and you are not CPR certified, 911 can walk you through this process. It's okay. I'm here to let you know that I personally would prefer if you would go get CPR certified. But if you're not, it's okay. 911 can walk you through this process, okay? And what we call this is the recovery position. Most of the time when you administer Narcan to an individual, they are going to vomit. 
all right? That is okay. However, we need to get them on their side as quickly as possible. We don't want an individual to choke and die on their own vomit, right? Staying and watching the individual, this is very important. We do not want to administer naloxone to someone and leave them alone, okay? We want to stay and watch them. A lot of individuals may wake up and they may have no memory of overdosing at all and also trying to comfort them. So again, they are going to be in opioid withdrawals. They are not going to feel so well. So the naloxone triggers this, and it's important to try to help keep them calm as well as ourselves, right? We need everybody in this situation very calm. This is a very high crisis situation. So also, discouraging the individual to not use opioids for at least two hours. I know this may sound crazy. However, your naloxone has a 30 to 90 minute window. If an individual uses opioids while that naloxone is attached, they are not going to fill those opioids. However, when the naloxone wears off and those opioids attach, an individual can go into a second overdose. And this is very dangerous and we don't want that to happen. All right, so just trying to explain this to them. Um, it can help prevent another overdose. Also informing EMS. So when the paramedics get there, again, they're gonna need to know um, if Miss Mary's breathing, how much naloxone has been administered, and what Miss Mary took, if you know so. If not, again, you know the two most important things, if Miss Mary is breathing and how much um, naloxone has been administered to Miss Mary. So some of the after effects, again, your naloxone only has 30 to 90 minutes, and the opioids can stay around for several hours. So some of the times when individuals um, respond to naloxone, this is fantastic, but they are gonna have some uncomfortable things that may go on, right? So they can wake up and they can be violent or erratic. Um, this is common. Individuals are not gonna feel so well when they're in withdrawals. A lot of people may not know what just happened or someone may simply may not have been wanting to be saved at that point in time. If they wake up and they are violent, it is okay. Please be safe and take care of yourself right? Um, but if Miss Mary wakes up swinging, please do not swing on Miss Mary. Just remove yourself from the situation. Keep yourself safe, all right? Also, projectile vomit. Again, this is very common. Um, this is probably going to happen. We just don't want the individual to choke, just trying to comfort them and things like that. Having a cardiovascular event, most of the time this is if individuals um, have had like long-term pre-existing medical conditions, things like that. If something like that happens after you administer naloxone, it is okay. There is nothing that we can do about that. We need to get 911 on the phone and let them know that something is going on and we don't know what's going on, okay? Also, experiencing musculoskeletal pain. So individuals may wake up and say that their back is hurting or their neck is hurting or their legs are hurting. Something is hurting very bad. That is normal and it is okay. All right, we're just gonna try to comfort them and ourselves as much as possible. So talking about compassion fatigue and burnout. Compassion fatigue is a secondary traumatization. This is emotional residue or strain of exposure to working with those suffering from the consequences of traumatic events. So compassion fatigue is very rapid onset, and we're going to talk about what this kind of looks like. Experiencing a burnout, this emerges over time. So this is a cumulative process. It's emotional exhaustion associated with increased workload or stress. Some of the symptoms to understand if you are experiencing compassion fatigue or burnout. Emotional, physical, or mental exhaustion, 
right? Reduced sense of personal accomplishment or meaning in your work. This can also be meaning in your life. You are very important, and I need you to know that. That is why you're here. You're very, very important, okay? So we need you to be taking care of yourself. Also, decreased interactions with others. So we call this isolation. If you've ever experienced some of these things, this is compassion fatigue and burnout. This is what they look like. And we have some tips for you. These are some things that you can do and things that you don't need to do, right? Finding someone to talk to is very important. Human connection is very, very, very vital to this earth. Understanding that the pain that you feel is normal, all right? Reread that sentence. It doesn't say that you're normal. It says the pain that you feel is normal, okay? Exercising and eating properly, getting enough sleep, taking some time off, journaling and developing healthy boundaries. All of these things are not necessarily just from working um, in this field or things like that. This can be experiencing it with a family member or someone in the community that you love and care about, things like that. This can happen in a lot of ways. Just because it says work, that's not necessarily what it means, all right? Things that we don't want you to do, we don't want you to fall into the habit of complaining with your colleagues, your coworkers, um, people you go to school with, people you come to church with right? Negativity spreads like wildfire. So we don't need to do that. We don't want you doing that. Working harder and longer. If you're experiencing compassion fatigue or burnout, we don't want you to work harder on top of that. We need you to take care of yourself. Self-medicating. This is a big one. Remember when I was talking about self-medicating? We don't want you to turn to anything that is mood or mind altering in order to take care of some of the feelings that you're feeling. All right? And neglecting your own needs and interests. Again, you all are very important, and you can't pour from an empty cup. I don't know if you've never heard that. If your cup is empty, you can't pour anything out of it. So we need to keep our cups full. Okay? So getting naloxone, in the state of Tennessee, we have what is called a standing order. That is a state law. What this means is that if you are a resident of the state of Tennessee, you can go to a pharmacy, and you can obtain naloxone without a doctor's prescription. However, this naloxone can be up to $150. Um, some insurances pay for it. Some insurances don't. You can use health savings accounts, things like that. Um, most of the time, this is our major pharmacies, so like CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid, those type of pharmacies, some of our mom and pop pharmacies aren't really on board with carrying naloxone yet, and that's okay. Um, so this is going to be our major pharmacies, but again, this is a state law, and you can obtain Narcan from pharmacies. So the grant that we're under is called Tennessee Save a Life. Um, the ROPES word that you see, that is Regional Overdose Prevention Specialist, that is what they call us. So since October of 2017, ROPES have distributed over 170,000 units of naloxone right here in our state. Out of that 170,000, over 17,000 lives have been saved. That's a beautiful number out of that. So the way that we know this, all right, we have these things called overdose reversal forms. So what happens is if you have to administer your naloxone, I would prefer that you get in contact with me and I'm going to get you to fill out one of these forms. They're completely anonymous, all right? They don't want you or your information. They just need to kind of know the situation that is going on, like maybe where you had to administer naloxone, how much naloxone, and is the individual alive. All the data that we collect is anonymous. 
So what we do is only possible because of federal grant funding that we receive for combating the opioid crisis in Tennessee. So in order to prove that this program is effective and we ensure continued funding, these are some of the um, data that we turn in. So there are training surveys up here. So if you attend in this training, I would ask you very, very, very politely to please fill out one of these training evaluations before you leave. Um, it's going to be the zip code to this facility, which is... 37919. So what we do is we turn these into the state. They want to know, how can we make this presentation better for you? How can I be a better trainer for my community? Right? So please be honest. That's what we need you to do. It's really quick. It's really simple. So please fill that out for me if you don't mind. Again, our overdose reversal forms, those are some of the things that we turn in. And also where it says naloxone distribution numbers, we keep what is called a Narcan inventory. Um, we just update that on a daily basis, basically um, where the state knows where the Narcan is going, what zip codes, things like that. Um, so they just want to see that. These are the things that we turn in. So if you or an individual needs help, yes. Um, so if you are online right now, um, if you will please send me an email to jstanley at metrodrug.org. It's J-S-T-A-N-L-E-Y at M-E-T-R-O-D-R-U-G dot O-R-G, jstanley at metrodrug.org. What I can do is I will email, uh, email you a training evaluation and I will get with you about um, getting your Narcan kits. They'll probably be here with Mr. Wayne. So um, that's how we can do those. I can send them to you in an email. Also, there is an available part where you can scan your phone, um, but I don't know how that would work with it being up here. Um, so that's how the training evaluations work. And if you are an individual that you know is in need of treatment, recovery, social services, you can contact the Tennessee Red Line. The number is up here. Also, you can text the word SAVE, S-A-V-E, to 30678. And also, fortunately, at the Metro Drug Coalition, we have a regional lifeline director. Her name is Ashley Krause. She covers Knox County and 15 surrounding counties. What she is, is she is a referral source for treatment and recovery-related resources. Um, she is superwoman, and she can help with anything. So if you all ever need anything, just let me know, um, and we can make that happen for you. Okay, um, so we have reached the end of our slideshow, but I do want to open this up and make sure that everyone has an understanding of what we went over today. And if you have any questions, um, because I want to leave here knowing that you are confident in the case that you ever had to run across this situation, which I hope you don't. But if you do, just want to make sure you're very comfortable. Yes. So the nasal sprays are good for two years. Um, the ones that I have currently, the expiration date is October of 2023. So the box that they come in, every single, um, every type of Narcan that you receive, it either comes in a box or a bag and located either on the bottom of that box or the back of that bag is gonna be the expiration date. If you ever come up on Narcan that is expired, please let me know. I need to get that from you and I can replace it for you. Um, also, or if your Narcan is getting ready to expire, I can also replace that as well. Oh, so the Narcan that is getting ready to expire um, or is expired, those go to our harm reduction services. So again, our clean needle exchange, um, all that Narcan goes to them. So yeah, when we collect that, that's what happens. 
like use it on them? Is that what you mean? Yes. So again, naloxone is very safe. It only responds to opioids, okay? Um, so if it's administered on a teenager um, or if a small child was to get into it or anything like that, naloxone is safe and only responds to opioids. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yes. Nope, there is none to our knowledge. Um, the only thing that we know is that it only responds to opioids. Um, so there is not a medical condition that requires an individual to not be able to be administered naloxone. Yeah. Yes. To give them water, um, I would make sure an individual was up and moving, coherent, um, able to stay awake. Um, some individuals, when they're administered naloxone, they, you may still see them like having kind of a nod out or may not be so present with you. Um, so I would make sure an individual was up, able to move, you know, functioning properly before I gave them food or water. Um, I would not suggest that in extreme temperatures. Did you have another question? No, you're fine. Did you say yes or no? Okay. And did you have a question? Um, so they, they all work the same way. So if an individual becomes violent, it would be when they are waking up, responding to after the Narcan has been administered. Because if we administer it, they're going to be unconscious. Does that make sense? Um, so if you are by yourself and an individual becomes violent, please make sure you have 911 on the phone. Um, let them know what's going on and, and remove yourself from a situation. We do not want you to be in any situation that is harmful to you. Yes. Um, I've, I've heard certain things, but I don't really know enough to speak on it. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, we have not been educated on situations that may have arise like that. Yeah. Did somebody else have a question? 
Yes, ma'am. Um, if you, if that make, if that would make you comfortable, um, nine one one calling would be at your own discretion. Um, but there were the signs and symptoms of an individual being high or over medicated, um, and depending on a personal situation for you, um, calling nine one one would be very personal to you. But yes, administering Narcan once an individual is unconscious. Not before, no. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, so, in case you go into crisis mode, you are probably not even going to remember my face standing up here talking to you. So, in your Narcan kit, there is going to be a card, um, and it has your instructions on here. Yep. So in case you go into crisis mode, you forget what's going on, you don't even know your name at the point in time, you can pull this card out, set it right beside the individual. It's very helpful. Okay. And that can, this can go a long way just in case. Yep. And then um, Mr. Wayne has a slideshow. So if anybody would like that, you're more than welcome um, to it and to have it. Yeah. Is everybody okay? Everybody feel confident? Yes, um, so we do trainings with our first responders, law enforcement. Um, we do provide Narcan for them as well, um, and they most of them do carry it. Um, they are trained on it, and we've came a very long way with law enforcement um, on this matter. So um, they are very amazing at responding and taking care of these situations. Um, a lot of them are very helpful and compassionate as well. Um, so, yes, our first responders, they do carry it, um, and they are trained on it, and um, they do um, an amazing response job. So, yep, the more people in the community that we have on board is better, because the more, the more we have, the more people we can reach. Um, it's actually very common. Um, it's more common than, than you would probably think. I know a lot of individuals who have administered Narcan. Um, and, you know, of course, a lot of them are close family members, things like that. Um, but a lot of individuals have been in a situation where the individual was unknown to them. Mm -hmm. um, it's more common like at our gas stations, things like that. So, yeah. Is everybody okay? All right. Well, thank you guys. This was an absolute honor. Please, before you leave, um, if you don't mind, to grab a training evaluation and get those to me before I go. And then there's a stack of business cards if you need anything. Thank you. Another thing, if you are connected with a group that you think would benefit from this training, if you can contact Jessica directly or contact us here at the church, and we'll be glad to connect you. She loves doing these kind of things and getting lots going out into the community. So we can certainly make that happen. Thank you so Thank much. You so much.